0: Thank you. ...were presented to me by the victims of the crime or the perpetrators who committed the crimes. My descriptions of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you are going to get offended, turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. As always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. Before I begin today's episode, I want to talk to you about another true crime podcast, and it's called Murder Ish. And its host is Jamie Rice. We met Jamie at CrimeCon and she was super cool, right? We took photographs together, but I was actually introduced to her podcast by the host of Minds of Madness, Tyler Allen. He recommended her to me. And My wife and I got to listen to it before we went to CrimeCon, and we both liked it a lot. Very well done. The stories are top-notch. The investigative work and reporting are top-notch, and you need to give it a listen if you like true crime. That's well done. So I want to introduce you to Jamie now. Jamie Rice from Murderish.
1: Hi, I'm Jamie, host of Murderish, a true crime podcast that provides a 3D look at gripping murder cases from beginning to end. You'll get to know the victims and perpetrators, how their worlds collided, and what went down during trial. I also share some of my own personal experiences, like the time a stranger came into my bedroom at night. Yeah, that really happened, and I walk you through all the details of that terrifying night. Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall during a murder trial? You'll get that opportunity on Murderish, as I share my experience being a jury foreman on a first-degree murder trial. Search Murderish in your favorite podcatcher app, hit subscribe, and start binging. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
0: All right, y'all. It's Jamie from Murderish. Give it a listen. You won't be disappointed. And check out all her social media, etc. And when you do and you like it, then let them know that Woody from Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast sent you. All right. Today's episode is titled Ice Cold Killer. In 2004, After becoming a detective with the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, as I've told you in previous episodes, when everybody would leave and I was a rookie detective, I would stay behind and read the cold case files. And one of the ones I read was from 1988. And the reason this case stuck in my mind is because of the brutality of it. Now, in 1988, they didn't have digital cameras. It was the old Film and most of them were in black and white. They had some that were in color. I remember going to this case file and looking at it and being like, Holy shit! And it was just horrendous. The victim evidently had been robbed, and her vehicle had been robbed, and her personal items stolen, her jewelry and purse, and a 380 semi automatic pistol, which her fiance had given her, was missing. But what happened was she was found out in the woods on a piece of property that her and her fiance had purchased together. And they had planned on clearing it and putting a house trailer on it so they could move out of their parents' place when they got married the next year. But they had to have it cleared first before they could put a trailer on it. And her body was found brutally murdered, raped, head caved in the whole nine yards but anyway so i started looking at it and the lead detective on the case was mr kearney foster now at that time kearney foster was my chief of detectives actually is more like the chief of operations he was number two for the sheriff's office and he had been there for 30 plus years and i had and i still do have mad respect for mr kearney he had forgotten more about law enforcement than i'll ever know if i lived to be 110 but I love to watch him work. One of the first murder trials I watched was him testifying on the stand on the case that he had worked previously. And I'm just absolutely in awe of the way that he works the jury and works the courtroom, etc. And I gleaned a lot of information from him on that. But also, he was over me when I was in uniform patrol. I mean, he was over everything to do with the criminal side of the sheriff's office. So I came up and a lot of people thought he was too much of a hard ass or whatever, and he would call you on the carpet. As we say, you get called on the carpet means you're going to stand in front of your boss and get your ass chewed, and you mess up, sure, he's going to let you know about it, right? And there were many, many Monday mornings after working Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights that I, I would just leave my phone on because I knew somebody was going to be calling in and filing some kind of complaint on me, and I was no stranger to the carpet in front of Mr. Kearney's. Yes, I can tell you that. But I learned a lot from him. He never chewed my ass without teaching me or give me constructive criticism or a lot of times attaboys and just mad respect for him. So I read that file and I remember just talking to him about it one day in his office. I don't remember how it came up. Somebody got murdered in the same area. It might've been the Christopher Pell case, but anyway, we got to talking about it and he said, you know, there's one from Walker That's what it was. We were talking about how few murders Walker had had in X amount of years. And he was like, well, let me tell you about one in 1988. And when he started talking about it, I was like, Mr. Kearney, I read that file. And I said, that's some bad shit. He's like, yeah, he said, it's one of the worst that I ever had to work. you know." And he said, I sure would love to close it before I retire. He told me, he said, I had my main suspect and I interviewed him many, many times. I just couldn't get off of him as suspect because I couldn't prove he didn't do it. He said, but there was always talk of the victim being seen talking to a white male outside of a laundromat in Walker on the day that she went missing. So I'm gonna give you the backgrounds on the case now on April the 4th, 1988. Charlotte, Sourwin, and Vince Lejeune were living together and they got into a fight, not a physical altercation, but they got into a fight over money because she wanted to hurry up and get the piece of property they had bought cleared. And her fiance, Lejeune, would spend money on other stuff, right? I think it was going to cost like $1,300 to have the lot cleared They had like 900 saved up, and he had gone out and bought something for his motorbike or something like that, and she was pissed. And so they got into an argument about it, and she told him, you know what, don't even worry about it. I met somebody, and we're going to go look at the property tomorrow, and he's going to cut me a deal on having it cleared. And he said that they argued the night, and the next day when he left, he didn't even think he told her goodbye or that he loved her. So he goes to work, and he comes home that evening, and Her vehicle's not there, and she's not there, and he notices that her purse isn't there, and he had bought her a three eighty semi semi-automatic pistol for protection, and she didn't like it. He said she was afraid of the gun. She had accidentally discharged it once in the residence and shot a hole in the floor, right? She pretty much was scared of it, but when he saw that the pistol wasn't on the counter, he was like, that struck him as kind of strange, and they thought, well, she's going to meet this strange guy. Maybe she took it for protection. So it's dark. She's not home, and he's worried about her, and finally, he's like, well, let me go out to the property and see if she's out there. That's where she said she was going to meet the guy, and in 1988, there were no cell phones. If you had one, it was one of those gigantic bag phones, and you had to be a lawyer or a doctor or something, right? So he drives to the remote location, and as he's pulling up, he sees her car. He gets out, walks up to the car, and looks in the windows, and he sees the stereo's been ripped out, and the speakers are gone. And he's like, he just knew something was wrong, at least that the vehicle had been burglarized. Then he said that he opened the trunk of the vehicle just in case somebody had stuffed her in the trunk, and... She wasn't in there, and he saw a vehicle pass on the road, and so he jumps in his truck to try to hurry up and catch the vehicle, which ended up pulling into a driveway just a little bit further down the road. But in his haste to back out, he hit her car with his truck, and then he went down the road and screams at the guy, call, call the law, call the law, something's wrong here. And so the neighbor did. He called, and the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office responded. And... They arrived on the scene, and Charlotte wasn't anywhere by the car. So they began to search the property, and they made Lejeune stay towards the front of the property. And then detectives had to be called out, and it turned into a bit of a show, if you will. But somebody called. Lejeune's parents came out, and Charlotte's family came out. And so they couldn't let him into the search area, and it went on into the night. Mr. Kearney said it lasted like two in the morning. Then they found Charlotte's body. The photographs that I saw, whomever did it had tied a rope around her neck and dragged her into the woods and beat her, caved in, basically smashed in the side of her face and raped her. It was bad. So, When they come out and they tell June that she's dead, they found her. He was trying to get to the body, and they had to restrain him, just a bunch of stuff. And he's not even thinking at this time that, you know what, I'm the one who is the fiancé and all this, that you know, the law enforcement is going to come look at me as a suspect because he's like, I didn't have anything to do with it, right? But law enforcement always starts with... A couple of things, it looks into people that are closest to the victim and, of course, naturally, who finds the body or reports it. So they worked it and the witnesses saw Charlotte talking to a white male outside the laundromat and Walker during the day. And that's the last reported sighting of her alive. And Lejeune told the detectives one is Mr. Kearney, my chief, that they had argued, I mean, he was honest with me. He had told him everything I told you, that they had argued the night before and all this one. He's not thinking, holy shit, that they're not going to find who did this or what have you, and they're going to start looking at me as a suspect. But they did. I mean, Mr. Kearney and them could not exclude him. And when you can't exclude someone like that, you have to keep pursuing him. And of course, you're going to look into other leads, but there was nothing. It was ghost. I mean, it was just pure horror and as time went on and the years passed and time passed, Mr. Kearney never gave up. He said he would go back and question him again and again, but he never had enough to charge Lejeune with the murder of Charlotte. Now, Lejeune also always cooperated and would come in, etc. The bad thing was Walker was so small, and everybody thought Lejeune killed her, and it was just I mean, I can't imagine that shit for him. I mean, I feel bad for him, but I absolutely would have done the same thing if I was Mr. Kearney one pursuing the guy until I could get off of him. So I get that standpoint. But let me tell you what really happened, okay? And to say that I'm going to be shortening up this guy's story is an understatement. But Roy Allen Milosaugh. And that's a good, strong Cajun name. It's spelled M-E-L-A-N-C-O-N. Was born February the 13th 1937 in New Iberia, Louisiana. I affectionately refer to it as the Berry. It's in the heart of Cajun country. Have a lot of history there. And you just don't get any more Cajun than that. His father was an oil field worker, and they moved between Louisiana and Texas. But it didn't take long, right? I don't know juvenile records or whatever but i know when he turned 17 years old he was arrested for the first time in corpus christi texas for impersonating a federal officer and fraud and he was sentenced to a two-year prison sentence but the judge suspended it and said he had to be on probation well think about how it was back then y'all you have different jurisdictions they don't have any way to communicate with each other they don't have the computer systems they don't have the NCIC computer or any way to really correlate any crimes that go on or anything like that in the county over or the next parish over much less in that state so if you get somebody that's a true good bad guy and then he's traveling and he does bad things it'd be hard to catch him so He's sentenced to two years on probation, and he doesn't even make it, like, not even a year. And he gets arrested in Louisiana for burglary. He's sentenced in 1956 to the four years for the burglary and theft, and he's sentenced to Angola. And just over a year later, in January the 7th of 1958, he got parole from Angola. Then he goes back to Texas, and he gets locked up in 1960, is given a two-year sentence for burglary in Orange County, Texas. In Orange County and Corpus Christi, this is all relative, right? It's all the old field areas and it's, and it's real close to the Louisiana border. But he gets out in 1961. He served 13 months. He gets out and lo and behold, he rapes a lady in Jefferson County, Texas. And they couldn't stick it to him, right? So... And then 1974, he rapes the second woman in Texas, and he's not charged with it yet. And then in July of 1974, in Napa, California, Anita Andrews is found dead inside of Fagini's bar. I'm going to come back to that. And then one month later, in August of 1974, Michelle Wallace, who was a beautiful young lady, gives Melanson a ride near Schofield Park, Colorado. Three days later, her parents report her missing. A couple weeks later in September, Melanson is arrested for fraud, writing bad checks, and breaking into a car in Schofield Park, Colorado, where he is being developed as the lead suspect in the disappearance of Wallace. March of 1975, he's extradited back to Texas to stand trial for one of his rapes. Now, y'all, I ended up doing some research on this one because I found it so interesting, but man, the victims gave the details of the rape. This is not a one and done rape. He tortured his victims. I mean, he would keep them for like days and days and stuff, but one of them, he just raped her repeatedly and he even showed her his driver's license and she ended up talking to him and talking him out of killing her and, and making like she was his friend. And he ends up letting her go. And so this is the one that comes back to bite him. But the other rape victims is the same thing. I mean, it's just violent, choking. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to fuck you. I'm going to kill you. And strength, whatever. It's just torturing him mentally and physically. So at the end of that trial, and again, I'm summarizing things, y'all. At the end of that trial, he's convicted and received a life sentence. Okay? Later on. The state of Texas fucked up, and they reduced the life sentence. Now, remember Michelle Wallace went missing in Colorado in 74, and Melanson's the lead suspect in it, and they had never found her body. But in July of 1979, a hiker found two ponytails or hair that was consistent with the way that Michelle wore hers. And Melanson does his time, and his sentence is reduced in March 23rd, 1988, he is released, okay? April 5th, 1988, is when Charlotte was murdered outside of Walker. Moving on, on Molosson's history. May 15th, which just over a month after Charlotte was murdered, Molosson gets arrested in Kentucky on being a convicted felon in possession of a firearm. Guess what kind of firearm it was? semi-automatic 380 pistol and the numbers were filed down on it. So when Charlotte was murdered, they Lejeune had the numbers, the serial numbers for the firearm, and they were entered into the NCIC database. But when the authorities in Kentucky ran this pistol, evidently the numbers were filed down enough where they misread at least one of them so when they entered it into the system it doesn't come back as stolen out of louisiana or they could have tied him in or he would have been developed as a suspect in charlotte's case then so what else is happening in this time y'all 1991 dna is becoming available to test and it's being proven in criminal cases and guess what august 2nd 1991 DNA was more prevalent, right? It's being proven, it's being used, and the authorities in Colorado got hair samples from Michelle Wallace's hairbrush from her family, and they were able to positively identify and match the hair braids that the hiker had found in Colorado to Michelle Wallace. We know she's deceased. And I know there's a lot of dates, but just bear with me, it's, it needs to be told. November 6, 1991, Molossan got released from the Kentucky prison. January 1992, a couple months later, he is arrested again in Kentucky and convicted on a burglary and some other charges. August, eight months later, Michelle Wallace's body is found in 1992. So they had developed Molossan as a suspect through a whole bunch of evidence, but they just never, never had enough to put him away until her body was found. They didn't want to try him without a body. And back then, you just didn't do that. No body, no murder. I mean, nowadays, people get convicted all the time off of circumstantial evidence, et cetera. So anyway, so Colorado authorities bring him back out, put him on trial for prison, and he gets convicted. And he's sentenced to life in prison in Colorado. During one of the prison transfers in Colorado in 2003, Authorities took a DNA sample from Alonso, and they entered it into the CODIS database. In November of 2009, the DNA comes back as a match to Miss Andrews, who was the one I told you was found murdered in Napa, California. So, he ends up getting prosecuted for that lady's murder also. Now, what's going on in Livingston Paris, and what's transpired to bring Melanson or have evidence retested, et cetera. Well, as I told you in the Screwdriver Red series, Mark Lewis, when we did him on the DNA for Janet Benoit's 16-year-old cold case, Stan Carpenter, who is now the chief of detectives, Mr. Kearney retired, I think, in 2006 or 2007. It must have been 2006 because I'm still there. Stan Carpenter, super duper leader, and investigator. Just like on the Janet Benoit case, he's thinking, well, shit, if Mark Lewis did Janet Benoit at 16 years old, let's submit all the evidence we can from all the cold cases. And so they went through file by file. You have to remember on these really ice, ice cold cases, they weren't looking for DNA back then. When they collected evidence, they collected it by chance. And on Charlotte's, Sauron's, murder case they were able to collect a semen sample from her clothing and the only way they found that was by using the blue light right so they didn't know about the dna was going to come out years later but they took that sample and thank god that they did and somehow it survived all these years in evidence and it was submitted and the thought probably was going to be that it was going to be screwdriver red that did her But it comes back that it was Melanson. And so when Stan Carpenter gets the call from the state police crime lab, again, he's smart. Just like he did on Janet Benoit, he got the call from the state police crime lab that they had Lewis. He didn't just rush off and do him right. They worked the case and found the weapon that Lewis used, etc. Stan plays it this way on the Melanson case. And cause I mean, when they pull this dude's rap sheet, he's, it's longer than fuck. I mean, he's killed, I don't know how many people and raped a whole bunch more. So what they did when they found out he was arrested in Kentucky with a 380 firearm, they, they talked to people and I'm going to say they, Detective Ben Bourgeois, who I told y'all about in Screwdriver Red, who is now the chief of detectives since Stan retired. Ben was kind of Stan's protege, if you will. Super smart, great detective. So they talked to witnesses in Kentucky, and guess what? The witnesses in Kentucky, after all these years, were able to give a description that matched the description that was given of the white male that Charlotte Sauron was talking to outside the laundromat on April 5th, 1988, the day she was discovered murdered. That with the fact that the pistol ultimately ended up being Charlotte's pistol. So, I mean, they got a lot now, right? So they fly out to Colorado and go to interview him. And, they're trying to talk to him and trying to get past his Miranda rights or whatever. And he's like, man, fuck y'all. I got detectives coming from all over the country trying to pin every murder case in the world on me. But I think he did say he had never even been like to Livingston or to Walker and hadn't met this girl. And then when they say, you know what, we got your DNA, bitch. And he's like, "Mm, well, fuck you. If you got my DNA, go get a warrant. And they said, okay, and we'll be back with one. And so, ultimately, they got a warrant for Moulin's arrest for first-degree murder for Charlotte Sovereign for the robbery and right? rape. Because, remember, he burglarized the vehicle. He stole her purse in the firearm. So, they just an amazing, amazing cold case. And that's ice, ice cold case from an ice ice. Ice cold killer. This guy's rap sheet in the story is unbelievable. I hadn't thought about it in many, many years. And I was reading yesterday in our Real Life Real Crime friends, fans, and crew private page. And we have a lady who's a Dream Team moderator, Karen Ortolano. And she does research. And every day she's posting about a different crime and she had posted about this case. And shit, I don't know where I was, what I was doing, because normally I watch the news every day, the local news. But when this broke, I'd have just missed it. I mean, and otherwise, I certainly would have remembered it. But Karen posted in the group, and I'm like, I'm reading it with my morning coffee. And I'm like, holy oh, fuck, I'm, I can't believe this. I remember talking to Curry about it. I vividly, vividly remember the crime scene photographs just horrible what he did to it and I remember currently talking about Vince Lejeune and how he stayed on him all those years and and Vince Lejeune never moved from Walker, Louisiana which like I said at that time I think it was like 3,000 people and he was a suspect and everybody in the, the town thought he was a killer. I mean he had a hard life still worked in the oil field industry but he had been married several times and long time battles and it, with drug addiction, et cetera, and he said that he was drinking beer outside his house one night after all those years, 25 years later, and they get a call, and one of them says, hey, there's a Stan Carpenter on the phone for you from the sheriff's office, and he's like, "Um, I know what this is about, and then you know, he gets on the phone, and Stan tells him, hey, I need you to come in tomorrow. There's been a break in Charlotte's case, and he thinks he's going to get in and be questioned again, but you know what? dude you, in his heart of hearts he didn't do it right so he goes in and guess what charlotte's sister is in the office waiting with him and stan was able to break it to him about the dna and melanson guaranteed killer and that they had warrants for his arrest and everything so and lejeune said that he cried and this the sister Charlotte's sister, I mean, they had a lot of animosity and didn't hold it back on Lejeune from telling them what they thought over the years, etc. But rightfully so. I mean, if it was my family member or yours, you'd probably do the same thing. But the poor bastard. And um, so just got to give a kudos to Stan Carpenter and Ben Bourgeois and for closing that case out. And that's a case where that's not only a cold case. It's Ice, ice, cold case in from an ice, ice, cold killer. I mean, this dude, if you get a chance, if, if you just Google him, and I I don't like to do the Google stuff, right? I like to tell my own stuff, but his shit is so bad and so long, it will blow your mind. Roy Allen, the song. Look it up you won't be disappointed. And it was way too much. I could have done a 10-part series on this guy. But he's been done before y'all on investigation discovery about the Michelle Wallace case. And I actually remember watching that and, and thinking how strange it was. They found ponytails, right, with the braids in it after all the years. But I didn't know about all the other killings and when he started out. And, of course, I didn't know poor Charlotte Sauer's murder and all that. But, anyway, interesting and I hope you enjoyed it there's also a book called Smooth Talker Trail of Death and it's by Steve Jackson and he covers it in detail I just I just glanced at a couple things in it so if you want to learn more about Roy Malone's song, who I call an Ice Ice Cold Killer because he's just the way he did his victims. And I don't know if I told y'all, i to go back to it. Charlotte Sovereigns, not only did he beat her and cave her head in and rape her, he also slit her throat. And the book has a lot of heroin details that Steve Jackson puts in there that he got from the victims of the rapes that lived. So just an interesting case from a criminal mind standpoint. So that's Steve Jackson. And the smooth talker. And the smooth talker part is because his whole deal, my love song, through his whole life and how he got his victims. He was smooth and charming. And he just had the gift of gab. And he would lie to him and tell him anything that he, that they wanted to hear to put him at ease, et cetera. And he did some sick shit. Wrap this episode up now. And I appreciate you listening. And, you know, I love each every one of you, but I'm going to tell you one more thing before we go. And it's about another podcast and another great guy that I got to meet at CrimeCon. His name's Robin Warder, W-A-R-D-E-R, and he hosts a podcast. The trail went cold, and I was thinking about him today. All his cases, all his episodes are about unsolved crimes and murders, et cetera. In that's every detective or investigator's worst fear, right, to have the trail go cold on you. And so I think it's fitting to end today's episode with the trail went cold and an introduction to Robin Warder. Because if you like cold cases, this guy's like the king of them. So let me introduce you to Robin Warder with the trail went cold. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail went cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries then this is the podcast for you. Each week I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So, be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. All right, y'all, that's the Trail Went Cold, the podcast. Check it out. You like it, and I know you will. Go to social media and let him know that Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast sent you. And with that, I'm going to give a couple of shout-outs and announcements. First of all, I want to say thank you, and I love and appreciate each and every one of you fans. We are over 110,000 downloads. I think last week when I recorded, we were at 90, so we're growing phenomenally appreciate you continue to ask that you like and share uh, subscribe to real life real crime and i mean y'all are doing it already our numbers don't lie and i appreciate it and you know what somebody had put a comment about me talking about the numbers and the growth of the show and whatever like a negative comment well whoever you are sorry We'll have to agree to disagree, or, or you can kiss my ass because it's my show, and I'm showing my appreciations for my fans. And we had a discussion at CrimeCon and sense of about the die-hard real-life, real-crime fans, and we're going to call them lifers. So lifers, it's a playoff, of course, real-life, real-crime, and then lifers being we're down for life, right? So lifers, I want to tell you how much... I really appreciate you. And for every one negative comment, there's a hundred positive ones and people just showing the love for the show, sending me messages, sending stuff. It's just crazy, but I love and appreciate each and every one of you. Y'all, we've had a lot of requests for the shirts that either have murder by you on the back or sugar turn to shit, or he ran like a little bitch. Or the opening line of the song, I don't want no sugar in my coffee, Lord, it makes me mean. So we have all those available for purchase now. So check it out at RLRCPodcast.com. And the patron members, love you, appreciate you. We couldn't do it without you. And with that, I'm going to give a couple shout outs to our newest patron members. We have Miss Ashley Falcon, whose charge is disturbing the peace. Ashley, I really do appreciate you, sweetheart. It means a lot. Thank you so much. And then we have Jenny, no last name, whose charge is vandalism. And Jenny, like from Forrest Gump, right? Jenny, I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time to subscribe and be a lifer. And Mr. Dan Clark's charge is disturbing the peace. And Dan I appreciate you being a lifer. I appreciate you supporting me in the podcast. It's awesome. Thank you so much. And Miss Andrea Stoner, your charge is vandalism, Andrea. And I appreciate you for being a lifer and supporting the podcast. And I love it, love it, love it. I love all y'all, all your patron members. And we can get back into the list next week. But we are in the process of putting up the full bonus episode for the tiers that qualify for it and it's a real son of a bitch this story is and so i'm probably gonna catch some flag for it but it's a true story so that'll be y'all have that before you actually hear this episode on friday you'll have that patreon members and i appreciate you and it's the least i can do bonus wise for y'all but thank you all the fans and just love it Love it, love it, love it, and, and love everything that you do. love all the support, and we're excited to start Season 2, and I just happened across this case by chance, and so there's no 911 call, unfortunately, from 1988, but it's an interesting case, and I hope you enjoyed it, and we love you all. Check us out on our social medias, the Facebook pages, and Twitter, and Instagram, and YouTube, and you know, our three Facebook pages. I think that to hit 1,200 members in the Real Life, Real Crime friends, fans, and crew page. So all you lifers out there, I love you and I appreciate you. And until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace.